from the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, this is Tracy Jan calling from The Post. Am I catching President Trump, how are you? Hi, it's Robin Gibbon at The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Thursday, May 30th. Today, Nancy Pelosi's calculus on impeachment, why Israel is holding new elections, and a mystery washing up on the shores of Alaska. So on Wednesday, Robert Mueller gave his first and possibly last public statement about his investigation into the president's campaign. Once it was over, what were you thinking? I was thinking, oh boy, here we go again. The latest impeachment push is going to start five minutes ago. Rachel Bade covers Congress for The Post. And sure enough, it did. It's, I think it's a fair inference from what we heard in that press conference that Bob Mueller was essentially referring impeachment to the United States Congress. A number of Democrats came out just after Mueller went to the mic and made his statement and said it is time to begin impeachment. I mean, dear God, this guy cannot in any way uh, be allowed to be above the law. What we uh, saw Wednesday was huge, where Mueller came out publicly for the first time and basically said point blank that he felt he didn't have the authority to charge the president and didn't even consider it. And he basically kicked Congress on that issue. We saw a number of chairmen join the impeachment push after that. We saw a number of 2020 Democratic candidates also come out. And so I knew this was going to sort of trigger more impeachment talk. The question was how much. A few hours later, Pelosi, the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, expressed skepticism of that and again said, we're just going to keep investigating. It's not time. Because we have seen all these other things happen over the last few weeks that has also put pressure on Democratic leadership to pursue impeachment. That's right. And I think that with every deadline that is missed for documents for Trump officials to appear before Congress, every time we have a situation like we had yesterday where Mueller came out, we see more and more Democrats come out and say it's time to start impeachment. Pelosi has obviously been a skeptic of impeachment for months. She's worried that it's going to blow back on the party. But increasingly, Democrats are feeling like they have to do something. So for Speaker Pelosi, what is her calculus here in terms of weighing her concerns about impeachment with all of the calls that she's hearing from people from within her party? So we have this great anecdote that perfectly illustrates why she's concerned. Yesterday, my colleague Mike DeBonis was in Illinois at the exact moment that Mueller was going on TV and speaking for the first time. And he was following around Sherry Bustos, who is the chairwoman of the House Democrats campaign arm. She's from a Illinois district that Trump carried, one of about 30 Democrats from these sort of tough competitive districts. And even though the national attention and the attention here in Washington was all about Mueller and all about what it means for impeachment, at a series of events she had, nobody brought up impeachment once. Nobody brought up Mueller. And I saw the same thing happen in another rural Virginia district earlier this week when I went out to Elaine Luria's district on the Chesapeake in Virginia. And I went to a town hall there and the constituents there were asking about health care. They were asking about gun control. They were not asking about impeachment. They were not asking about, you know, holding Trump accountable. And this sort of perfectly illustrates why Pelosi is so 
wary of beginning impeachment because in these districts where the majority is actually made for the Democrats, people don't really care about that. And since it didn't come up at the town hall that I was at, I actually interviewed about 10 Democrats who were there that night. And I asked them, well, what do you think of impeachment? And a lot of them urged caution, just like Pelosi. They said they were worried that it would distract from the issues they care about, that they didn't want their lawmaker, a Democrat, to actually begin or push to begin an impeachment inquiry. What do you guys think about um, this notion of impeach, starting an impeachment proceeding? Well, I mean, okay, I was a public defender. I've given thought to that. But at the same time, I don't choose to focus only on that because there's so many other pressing issues. Mm -hmm. And if the impeachment route fails, then I would hope people would register to vote and make changes that way. I think right now it it seems like it's a double-edged sword. If you start it, it's just going to be killed and, you know, the Senate's not going to take it up. Right. So then does that give Trump a talking point that they're attacking me or they're attacking me? And I just think it's a sort of narrative that doesn't get told very often because the pro-impeachment voices are often the loudest. But there's a group of Democrats who really worry that their constituents don't care about that. And these are Democrats who are the majority makers in the House. But also those are questions or concerns that are all framed around the election and about 2020 and about who's going to be the next president. But there are also big questions of accountability and of the Constitution and of what Congress's responsibility is here. That's exactly right. And I think most Democrats are feeling that right now. You can see there's like a cognitive dissonance that they're dealing with where politically they think it's a loser. But I have talked to a lot of Democrats and including a lot of Democrats who haven't come out publicly to support impeachment who do think they have to do something. And one of them was telling me just before the recess What am I going to tell my grandkids if Democrats do nothing and they let the president stonewall Congress and sort of get away with what they feel is obstruction of justice? So how is this going to play out over the next few weeks and months? And what would it take to essentially force Speaker Pelosi to be in a position where she has to say yes to pursuing impeachment? I'm not sure we know yet. You know, Pelosi has mentioned a fear that she has that Trump will lose the 2020 election and refuse to step down. Really? It's a real thing that people think might happen? Pelosi has brought it up, yes. And it's it's interesting because she uses it as an argument for why they shouldn't do impeachment now. She mm-hmm. says they need, Democrats need an overwhelming victory in 2020 so that there could be no question about who won the election. So that is a fear of hers. Wow. Another thing I've seen tossed around is a lot of these subpoenas that are being ignored. They're going to the courts right now and federal judges are ruling about whether or not the Trump administration has to comply with congressional subpoenas for his financial documents or what have you. Now, some Democrats are worried that Trump lawyers might ignore what a judge says or that the president might say no, even if a judge orders him to turn over subpoenaed information. That I could see pushing Pelosi to begin an impeachment proceeding. But that's a long way away from now. So in her thinking, things have to be more egregious to justify going into impeachment. Yes, I think that that's fair. People who are close with her have told me that they don't think she feels what was in the Mueller report was enough. Pelosi has over and over again mentioned that the Senate would just acquit the president. And she is worried that... Since there were no charges out of Mueller's investigation against the president, 
if the Senate acquits him, that will be two bodies that basically let him go and say they're not going to charge anything. So would there be any positives from starting impeachment proceedings if they're kind of doomed to fail? So some of the Democratic investigators are arguing that they could get more information if they began an impeachment inquiry. The reason they would get more information is because they think federal judges will weigh in faster. It can take years to go through the courts on subpoenas. The Republicans, when they controlled the House, they sued Eric Holder, who was the attorney general at the time for Obama, for a bunch of documents he refused to give them. That took more than half a decade to get a lot of that information. And they only got it after Democrats took the House. So it was totally irrelevant. That is a huge fear of Democrats, is that Trump is going to drag all this stuff through the courts and that is going to go beyond 2020 and they're not going to be able to investigate him. Pelosi has pushed back on that. She's not convinced of that logic. But there are Democrats, including on the House Judiciary Committee, which has impeachment jurisdiction, who are out there arguing on a daily basis that if we begin an inquiry, we will be more likely to get you know, the Trump witnesses in for public hearings. We will be more likely to get the documents we need to investigate that this would help us. Which makes for a kind of interesting chicken and egg situation, right? Because if the idea is that there's not enough information to impeach the president, but then what is the best way to get that information by starting to impeach the president? And Pelosi made that point yesterday after we saw this new clamoring for impeachment. She said, you don't impeach until you got all the facts. Well, there are Democrats who say we can't get the facts unless we actually open an impeachment inquiry. And that's exactly what you're talking about there, the chicken and the egg situation. The other part of this is a lot of this is untested. We haven't gone through many impeachment proceedings, you know, in U.S. history. And so a lot of this is theory about what people think might happen or might be beneficial. But nobody really knows for sure. Rachel Bade covers Congress for The Post. Using that word, to me it's a dirty word. The word impeach. It's a dirty, filthy, disgusting word. On Thursday, as President Trump was about to board Air Force One, he responded to Democrats' calls for impeachment. The whole thing is a scam. It's one of it's a giant presidential harassment. And honestly, I hope it goes down as one of my greatest achievements. Because I've exposed corruption. I've exposed corruption like nobody knew existed. For the first time in Israel's history, the parliament, or Knesset, voted to dissolve itself. This comes after Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu failed to meet a midnight deadline on Wednesday to form a new governing coalition. Everyone thought Bibi would be able to pull this off, but we wake up this morning back in campaign mode. It's uh, it's like Groundhog Day, really. Loveday Morris is the Jerusalem bureau chief for The Post. Bibi won, or everyone thought he'd won. But in Israel, actually, what really matters is if you can form a governing coalition. Netanyahu was short by one seat. And Loveday says that this unprecedented development is in part because of a growing cultural divide in Israel. To make a coalition, Netanyahu needed to bring on board 
ultra-Orthodox religious parties, as well as his former defense minister, Avidor Lieberman, who's known for being quite stubborn and fiercely secular. So there was a little bit of natural tension there that he had to balance. Bibi and Lieberman were at loggerheads over a bill to draft the ultra-Orthodox into the military, which Netanyahu couldn't really bend on to keep other people in his coalition happy. So now we have elections in September. So rather than coming up with a compromise, they're just doing the whole thing over again? Now, normally the procedure is it would go back to the president. He'd he'd see if there was potentially someone else that could make a coalition. For various reasons, I mean, Netanyahu really doesn't want that to happen. One, it would mean he wasn't prime minister, but he has a lot of other legal issues which make this much more high stakes for him. His party was already forwarding legislation that would have made him immune from prosecution, which would have protected him in three criminal cases against him. We're expecting his pre-indictment hearing to happen in October. So, I mean, there's there's a lot at stake for Netanyahu. He definitely didn't want to see that happen. So not being able to make a coalition himself, the best chance he has of staying in power really is to go back to elections, hope that the cards fall slightly differently with the parties and that he'll be able to make a coalition afterwards. So you said that one of the central points of contention here is this issue of the military draft. What is that all about and why has that become a big enough focus that they're willing to dissolve the Knesset and do the election over again? A lot of people say this isn't the real issue. The real issue is a personal issue between Lieberman and Netanyahu. Maybe Lieberman wanted to go back to elections and thinks he can do better. The thing he's taken issue with is the draft law. Basically, a couple of years ago, Israel passed a law concerning conscription. Every young Israeli goes to serve in the military. But the law gave exemptions for religious Jews who want to go to yeshiva instead and study the Torah. The Israeli Supreme Court decided that was unconstitutional to give them special treatment. I asked the government to ask the Knesset to go and redraft this legislation. So basically, there's been a battle over this. Um, The Haredi parties obviously want to keep exemptions for religious Jews um, who don't want to serve in the military. But Lieberman very much um, wants to push through what is actually the current draft of legislation that gives quotas for the ultra-Orthodox to serve. It's a big issue for Israel. It definitely reflects a a battle that's going on here between the the secular and the religious. And the religious parties really boosted, boosted their number of seats in the Knesset this time around. So they're becoming more influential. A lot of Israelis don't like that. So President Trump has weighed in on what's going on right now in Israel. Well, it's too bad what happened in Israel. It looked like a total win for Netanyahu, who's a great guy. He's a great guy. And now they're back in the debate stage and they're back in the election stage. That is too bad because they don't need this. What can we make of that? It is an issue for the White House. Jared Kushner arrived last night in the thick of the Israeli uh, political chaos just as the Knesset was being dissolved and new elections were being called. He arrived to talk about the peace plan, the first step of the rollout of that happening at the 
end of June in uh, Bahrain. Um, they want to uh, build support for that. So he's here with um, Greenblatt on a on a regional trip. And he comes in, I think they were expecting there to be an Israeli government today and that um, everyone would have nice photo shoots and shake hands with Netanyahu and say congratulations on forming a government and let's pu- push forward with this peace plan. So now um, the peace plan is really up in the air. The White House had obviously been holding off, rolling it out until after Israeli elections. But as far as picking a moment to roll it out, I think it's really messed up the White House's um, window for that. I remember that the last time we talked, you described Netanyahu as something of a magician, that he continues to face allegations of corruption, that he has investigations into possible wrongdoing, that he is in, in many ways a very controversial figure in Israel, but yet he, he continues to get reelected and continues to maintain power. What's happening now, does that stand to threaten Netanyahu's ability to get past this? It's uh, certainly dented his uh, reputation as this slick political negotiator. This is uh, what Netanyahu's really known for, cutting these coalition deals, but he didn't. What he did manage, though, is um, in a situation where another person would have conceded defeat and handed the mandate to another candidate to form a government, he had Likud push push legislation through that would see new elections. So he's not giving up. He's definitely not giving up. He has a lot to lose. So you see that survival instinct of Netanyahu kick in. Likud forwarded this legislation a few days, actually, before the deadline. They put it through for its first reading to dissolve the Knesset. So he's he's definitely always thinking uh, one step ahead on on his survival, for sure. Loveday Morris is the Jerusalem bureau chief for The Post. And now, one more thing. A biological mystery. This is what scientists call an MME, or massive mortality event. I'm Brady Dennis. I'm a national environmental reporter for The Washington Post. This story starts in October 2016 on this remote island, St. Paul Island in the southern Bering Sea off the coast of Alaska. And this biologist was walking the beach and came across a dead puffin on the shore. And then another the next day, and then a community member found uh, several more the day after that. And day after day, these dead seabirds kept washing up on this tiny island which was incredibly unusual and rare, especially this time of year. In the end, they gathered something like three to 400 of these, and it pretty quickly became clear that these birds had died of starvation. And so that began this mystery of, well, why? Why did they starve to death? And why were they there this time of year when they should have been farther south? They should have already migrated. And so that got scientists into looking, trying to answer those questions and answer the mystery of, of why that was and why that keeps happening in various bird populations. So on Wednesday, there was this study that scientists published looking back at this. And one theory that researchers have about this is that the changing climate, the warming oceans, have 
changed the ecosystem, have changed where their prey moves, have changed whether they have enough food to begin with. So that probably contributed to the death of these animals. To see birds in mass just wash up dead on shores is sad in and of itself, but it tells you something is not right in the ecosystem out there in the ocean itself. Just this past month, there was a United Nations report that found that roughly one million plant and animal species are on the verge of extinction, and that these changes could have real impacts on, on humans, on human health, on, on how we survive, and that a lot of these losses are due to human activity. Now, whether you can draw a straight line to that and what's happening with puffins in the Bering Sea, I, I don't quite know, but researcher after researcher that I've spoken with said that each one of these is in the words of one, like a bell going off. And then there's been many bells ringing lately, is how she put it. Brady Dennis covers the environment for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. You can learn more about the stories in this episode by going to postreports.com and join in on the conversation on Twitter. We tweet using the hashtag postreports. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.